Let's just pray. Lord, we ask that you would guide us and speak to us now. Help us to come to your word with hearts that are open to hear what you're saying to us. Lord, this is a not very clear passage in some ways, but Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through it in any case. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 10. The summary or the title of this chapter is The Bittersweet Gospel. The gospel is sweet when we receive it, when we hear it, but it has a bitter side as well. We'll come to that as we go through this chapter as well. As we've been going through Revelation, we've seen that John has different visions that he has given And just as there was a break between the sixth and seventh seals being revealed, there's also a break in chapters 10 to 11 between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Chapter 10 provides an introduction to this break. It takes up half of it almost. Um, And it is expanded more in chapter 11. How do we approach... Revelation in general. How do we understand the the cycle of visions and then a break and then more visions and then more visions as well? We don't take the view that chapter one through chapter twenty. I can't remember twenty two or twenty three. I think it's twenty two. To the end of Revelation. How do we interpret those? those chapters some people interpret it as being that is a timeline of the New Testament church but yet that doesn't quite fit in many respects we would have had to have seen some of the <clears throat> the judgments already having been given out and we have to, we would have to wait for others there's a sense in which <clears throat> the interpretation that says uh, the seals, the bowls, the trumpets, even the letters to the churches applying not only to those seven churches, but also to the whole of New Testament history between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The same history is repeated from different perspectives. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. There is much that is the same. It's the same history that is discussed in the four Gospels. But there are some differences. Some Gospels include a parable that the others don't or a teaching of Jesus that the others don't. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience primarily, Mark was written for brevity, for being short. Um, Luke is long and historically detailed. is written for a non-Jewish audience. It's the first ever investigative journalistic report, as Luke outlines at the very first words of the first chapter. Those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are more historical Gospels outlining the history of what Jesus did and said 
whereas John's gospel is more contemplative or philosophical, although it covers the history of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, John focuses more on some of the teaching, the profound teaching of Jesus. They all cover the same history, but from four different perspectives. And so too, when we come to Revelation, we see the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the the signs as being different perspectives on the same history of mostly the church from Christ's first coming to his second coming, but to some extent even from the birth of humanity to when we will be with the Lord when Christ comes. The whole of human history, not just New Testament history. So Revelation chapters 10 to 11 are an interlude, a break in a sense, but one which introduces the perspective of history from the perspective of the church. The letters of it to seven churches focused on how the church and its need to live a godly life in an ungodly world were outlined. But then we went into the judgments on unbelievers, judgments on the world, and the seven seals and the seven trumpets, those who are outside the church mainly. But now we're focusing more on, in fact, through chapters 12 to 16 as well, show how focus more on the church in an unbelieving world. But first in chapter 10, John is again commissioned to write down what he has seen, what he is told to prophesy to the world. At least most of it he is told to write down. There's a bit he's told not to write down here in chapter 10. Let's just recap there. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire and in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion and when he shouted the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven saying Keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. An angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head, a face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. He gave a great shout like the roar of a lion and then the thunders spoke back. At the start of World War II, Winston Churchill, in describing Russia, said, it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Well, he certainly had a way with words. When we're trying to figure out what Revelation chapter 10 is saying to us, there's a sense in which those words seem to be echoed. We're trying to figure out 
not only the symbolic language of an angel surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head, feet like pillars of, legs like pillars of fire. We don't know what he said. And we don't know what the seven thunders said in response. John was about to write them down and he was told not to. So here we have a secret inside a vision wrapped in metaphors. <laughs> and it's difficult to figure out what does it mean? I would suggest that we'd be quite foolish to to come hard and fast and say, this is what is the Bible is saying here. There's some things we just aren't told plainly. It's not like Jesus is telling us like some of his parables. This is what the parable means. And then he explains it in ordinary plain language. We don't have that here. Yet there are some clues that can point us in a helpful direction. So we can suggest, we can infer, we can try and tease out what it seems to mean, but we have to hold lightly to that. And yet we can be encouraged by it. Some think that this angel is the angel of the Lord himself, a picture of God himself. The description in the angel is quite like that in Daniel 7, the ancient of days, the Lord God himself. God's presence and protection for the Israelites was as they wandered through the desert. It was symbolized by the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. And this angel is wrapped in a cloud with legs like pillars of fire. The lion might symbolize the lion of Judah, reference to Jesus himself. And when God speaks, it's often with the sound of thunder. thunder speaking back is very close to the imagery of this being God but yet others take a different approach noting that description of another mighty angel doesn't quite fit with God who there isn't another like him in verse 5 the angel points to heaven and swears by it which would be strange if that were God himself pointing to himself in heaven. Also God is spoken of in the third person, verse 7, when the angel says, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. If it were God himself, it would be the mystery would be fulfilled just as I have announced to my servants the prophets. So there are indications that seem to associate this angel with God and yet others which seem to indicate this isn't God himself but an angel speaking on behalf of God so if we see that this is somebody speaking as if for God on behalf of God and yet not God I think we're getting the message just as an ambassador for a country will have some of the pomp and circumstance of the those in authority in a country, in that country that they're representing. So too this angel seems to have some of the the attributes or the characteristics associated with them but not quite belonging to them. Let's speak. This is God's message. This is his outworking. 
This angel had a little book in his hand, we're told, and the book was open. It seems that John could see what was on the page. That seems to be the, the inference by the book being open. It was common knowledge to those who could see it. On the one hand, there are seven thunders, which John is not allowed to tell us about. And on the other hand, there is the open scroll, which John presumably sees too. Some interpreters think that this little scroll is the same as the, the scroll op- opened in chapter 5, which contained God's plan of judgment and redemption. And yet others think this is a different message. It's hard to be certain. One thing that does seem reasonably clear, though, though, is that this angel stands tall upon the earth with one foot on land and one foot on the sea. And this seems to symbolize that, that God is all-powerful. He is in control. He has dominion over what happens on land and sea, which by extension means everything in the world. Everything that happens out there Everything that happens in every country, everything that happens on the internet, everything that happens at sea, in the air, God is in control. He has given us freedom for a time. He's given us free will to a point. And he is allowing us to, he's working out the history of redemption the fact that John is not allowed to write to us what the seven thunders said is on the one hand God keeping some facts secret from us. But on the other hand it shows that by the very fact that we're told that some things are kept secret, we're actually told that some things are secret. So that is a knowledge that we have. We know that God keeps some things secret. And I think that's what God wants us to know if God, if, if God had not wanted us, us to know anything at all about those things he would not even have mentioned he would not have even let John see them but he deliberately tells John well shows him things but then to, hears him, he hears the, the voice of the thunders but he then tells him not to write them the fact that we're, we know that we don't know something is God's way of telling us that, well, we don't know everything. He has his plan of salvation. He has his plan of redemption. He is working it out, and there's things that we're not aware of, the things that we don't know. And we have to live with that tension. We want to know, but we don't, and we can't. No one knows the day or the hour when Jesus will come again. And we don't know the details of all that will lead up to that. We have some of the big picture. We have, we know that Jesus is the victor. He is one. We're on the winning side. We shall overcome. But we don't know all the details of how that will be worked out. Yet we do know that God has his plans and he is in control. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, 
the earth and everything in it and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. The Old Testament imagery is very vivid here again. Ezekiel and Daniel are the two major books that are alluded to in Revelation. Such as Daniel 12, where an angel stood above the waters and raised his hands to heaven and swore by God who lives in heaven. The seventh trumpet being sounded has seemed to signify the second coming of Christ, the judgment day when God's final judgment will be given. And yet, there's a sense in which the, the seventh trumpet is, is ready to be blown. In fact, there's no delay in doing so. It's almost as if the seventh trumpet is being blown. And yet, there's a sense in which we still wait for the Lord to come. But the mystery that is associated with the seventh trumpet is already known to us. God's mysterious plan, announced to the prophets long ago, is already being worked out, is already revealed to us. What is this mystery? It's interesting that in Amos chapter 3, verses 48, we read of God as a roaring lion who is a secret which is revealed to his prophets. This secret that God has mentioned to the prophets in the past has been described by the Apostle Paul as being having been revealed to us now. In the Bible, when we talk about a mystery... It's not something which is unknowable, something mysterious that you can never quite grasp. A mystery in the Bible, at least in this context, is something that wasn't known but then became known. A fact that hadn't been revealed but then was told. And it's not a mystery anymore. Paul writes to the Colossians, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. He continues, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together in strong by strong ties of love. <coughs> I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him, 
lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. People love a mystery. People love crime mysteries. But it seems as though they, they love chasing the answer more than the answer itself. If you tell them what's on the last page of a crime novel, they don't want to read the rest of it. They're, they've lost the joy of it. They don't want the answer. They just want the chase. And so too we find that God's mystery has been revealed to us, but people aren't that enamored by the answer. The answer is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The mystery of Christ in you. Christ is revealed. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's mystery is Christ himself. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament kingship, the Old Testament prophets, prophet, priest and king, these three roles all pointed forward to one who would be the ultimate prophet, priest and king, Jesus himself. And yet, they pointed forward in an unclear manner. If you took all of what the Old Testament said about Jesus, you wouldn't be able to come up with the story of Jesus of Nazareth. But when you see the story of Jesus of Nazareth, all that he did for us, you can see, ah, yeah, that is what was prophesied. We have the message, the clarity of Jesus' life, his teaching, his suffering on the cross, his resurrection again from the dead. It is now revealed to us. It is no longer a mystery like it was under the Old Testament era before Christ came. It is now revealed to us. Not only that, Christ in you, the hope of glory, but that this gospel message is not restricted to a, a group of people any longer. This gospel message is opened up to the whole world, to everyone. <clears throat> it always was open to anyone who would join God's people. And some did. But now the gospel goes proactively out into all the world. <clears throat> the gospel needs to be preached in all kingdoms, all nations, before Christ comes again. Paul writes to the Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. <clears throat> this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The gospel is clear. The, the gospel which was described through the, 
the, the words of the prophets, which was lived out in the people of Israel, which was shown in different ways, incomplete ways, before Christ came, is now revealed to us in all its clarity and simplicity in Christ himself. The gospel message is no longer a mystery. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory, the message to everyone. And this message is being worked out all over the world. It's been shared, it's been communicated, it's been believed, it's being lived by people of all nations, all tribes, all languages turning to Christ in great numbers. It therefore seems that the days of the seventh trumpet are indeed even the, the days of the whole New Testament era. It's sometimes hard to be precise about the timings of Revelation. But the point is that God has revealed to us the message of the gospel, and we are living it out. We have received it, those who have believed, and we are sharing it, and others are believing it. And then John continues, Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again, Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. In Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, we see that Ezekiel was told to eat a small scroll which tasted like honey in his mouth, but then it was bitter in his stomach. If we turn to Ezekiel to see if this, what John has been told to do here is meant to take us to Ezekiel to help us interpret it, then we can get a clue from Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 10 as to the significance of what this what is happening to John. Ezekiel said, And I saw that both sides were covered with funeral songs, words of sorrow and pronouncements of doom. In Revelation chapter 10, the last verse in the chapter, we're told, Then it was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. There are varying interpretations as to what the sweetness and bitterness of the message are and how it relates to the nations. But the most convincing I find is that it is the gospel message which is sweet to the believer but also becomes a bitter thing to swallow. The gospel is glorious. It's the message of reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, we are forgiven, we are right with God simply by placing our faith in Jesus. We become new people in Christ. We receive a new spirit in Christ, a new identity as part of Christ's people, a new future with Christ forever. Yet although the message 
is a message of hope for all to turn to Jesus. It's also a message which confirms judgment and condemnation for all who don't. Condemnation for our sin, eternal punishment for our sin, for all who have not lived perfect lives, which is all of us. Whether we've sinned a little or a lot, we have a future of facing God in judgment. And no one is righteous, naturally. And so this is a bitter message. A message of sorrow. Pronouncements of doom, as Ezekiel says. But yet, this bitter message has a sweetness to it. It's a bitter message for all who will not believe, but yet the angels in heaven rejoice with God when even just one sinner places their faith in Jesus. It's a sweet message for everyone who believes, and we rejoice. We are glad when anyone, when everyone who places their faith in Jesus comes to him. And yet the message of judgment is bitter to John because when he added it was bitter, not just that the gospel message itself is saving for those who, who trust in Jesus, but those who don't are under condemnation. It's not just the objective truths about judgment that John seems to be writing about here. The fact that he had to eat this, the fact that in his stomach he felt the bitterness there's a sense in which what we're being told here is that if we have trusted in Jesus, we shouldn't just be happy for ourselves. We should have a sense of sorrow that others have not trusted in him. We should, have, we should not gloat over their future by any means. Some people preach hell as though they're happy to send people, they're happy to tell them that they're going there. But we shouldn't have that approach at all. We should not rejoice in the death of the wicked. We should have the compassion of God in our hearts. The message of salvation is a wonderful message. The message of judgment, we need to have the compassion of God towards those who have not yet trusted him. The wickedness of man has grieved God, as we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. God didn't just start again. He was grieved to his inner being. And so too, we should be grieved when we see sin. It should grieve us that people are going to a lost eternity. God is not sitting there willfully, happily judging people. He will not do that on the judgment day. He prefers mercy, not sacrifice, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, 13. In Isaiah 28, 21, we're told that judgment is God's strange work. It's not something that comes naturally to him in the sense of being what he delights in. He delights in mercy. He's able to judge perfectly, completely. But it's not something he rejoices in. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
that is God's desire. There's a sense in which that desire of God should be our desire too. There's a sense in which the the bitterness that John has sensed in his stomach and is how we should feel. The gospel should be bitter and sweet, sweet to those who receive it, but it's bitter for those who will not receive it, who will not accept it. It's often been said that it's only when we see God's just punishment for sinners, the fullness of that, the rightness of that, in all its its depth, that then, only then, can we see the fullness and the depth of God's mercy and love for those who deserve his condemnation, his punishment. When we see how serious sin is, we should have compassion on people. Our hearts should go out to them. We shouldn't minimize sin. We shouldn't make forgiveness almost a human right. Yes, people deserve to hear the gospel, to, to be forgiven, as if God is unjust by judging them. No, God is just when he judges. And it's only when we see that as being the natural and just and right thing that then we can see how great his compassion and mercy and love is for sinners. God's love is so deep that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those who reject God, those who are hell-bent against him, like the Apostle Paul was before his Damascus Road experience. Some even thinking, like Paul, that they're doing God's work and yet persecuting the church, persecuting Christ. Others are willfully doing evil, and yet, in God's grace, God calls people from the nicest of people to the worst of people. God calls them and brings them into a new relationship with him out of love, out of mercy, out of grace. And yet, those who don't turn to him, there's a sense in which the gospel is a bitter message it's sweet for those who trust in him but it's bitter for those who won't and there's a sense in which we need to have that dual response to the gospel too we rejoice when people turn to Christ but we have that awful experience of bitterness in our, in our stomach of of disappointment in our hearts when others won't. Let's keep the sweetness of the gospel in our mouths. Let's be willing to share it. Let's be willing to rejoice in it. Let's never lose the sweetness of the gospel. And ne- Let's never forget the awfulness of not accepting the gospel that bitterness that comes in our hearts knowing that those who are perishing 
will continue to perish if they don't trust in Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. When we preach the gospel to them and they don't repent, they're even more responsible for having rejected the gospel, not just having sinned. People go to hell because of their sin, not because of rejection of the gospel. But their rejection of the gospel makes it all the worse. Sometimes sharing the gospel with people is by their rejection of it another nail in their coffin. But for those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. For those who are being saved, for those who respond in faith, for those who listen and turn to the Lord, the gospel is a glorious message. It is something to be delighted in. The love of God the mercy of God, the compassion of God. As Paul says, who is adequate for such a task as this? Well, praise God that he is in control. He has simply given us the message to share with others and that by his spirit, he works and revives people spiritually. We thank God that the weight of all of that is not on our shoulders. It is on his shoulders. We thank God that his ultimate plan for the gospel to, to reach all nations and for many people from all nations to place their faith in him, he is working at it. He is building his church. And yet he gives us the privilege of being involved in sharing this gospel with others too. Let's do so with joy in our hearts, with seriousness in our minds, and yet with a realization that for those who will not accept it, it is a message of doom upon their situation of doom. But let's focus not so much on the judgment. People already know they're guilty before God in their consciences. We don't need to focus on a message which delights in that. We delight in the message of God's grace, of his mercy to us. Although John is given a message where he has to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings, that's the language of salvation more than anything else. That There will be people from all nations, languages, tribes and tongues worshipping God in eternity this is a joyful message, a hopeful message but one which has a bitter tinge as well may God give us the grace to glory in the gospel ourselves to delight in his mercy to share this message of his love with people, to have compassion on them to communicate this gospel with people who have not yet tasted that the Lord is good. And although we're aware that it is a savour of death unto those who are dying, it is a savour of life unto those who are believing. Let's be faithful to the command to share the gospel and let's leave the results up to God, our compassionate saviour, our wonderful, merciful and loving God.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that out of your compassion and love for us, you came into our world and Jesus, you suffered on the cross in our place. You suffered that awful eternity of sin that we deserve, that such a number of people deserve. And you had that all on yourself. You took that so that we wouldn't have to suffer. Lord, we thank you for such great love, for such great mercy, for such great forgiveness. Lord, help us to delight in that, to share that with others, to, to know that we are loved with an everlasting love that cannot be broken. And Lord, help us to communicate this with others. Help us to look expectantly that they will place their faith in you. And Lord, help us to leave the results to you. But Lord, we pray that you will save many people. We pray that you will turn hearts, change hearts, turn people towards you. Lord, we, we pray that there will be much rejoicing in heaven as not just one or two, but hundreds and thousands of people turned to you, accept the gospel and know your love and forgiveness. Lord, we long to see more people turn to you here. Lord, change our community, change our, our country, change this land, Lord that more people will trust in Jesus. Lord, be gracious, be merciful, and to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.